Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Advara and Conversations with podcast. My name is Lauren Hartsmith, and I'm the Director of Regulatory Affairs at Advara. I'm excited today to be joined by Camille Pope to discuss DEI, and that's diversity, equity, and inclusion in clinical research, which is both a topic of industry importance and a personal passion for both of us. Thank you, Lauren, for having me. As mentioned, my name is Camille Pope, and I am the Chief Medical Lead at Acclinate. Acclinate is a company that we like to say uses a bit of touch plus tech to help achieve health equity in clinical research. And so the touch part is community engagement, and the tech part is leveraging that with tech-enabled strategies to bring clinical research awareness, engagement, and opportunities to communities of color that have historically been underserved and underrepresented in the biomedical research space. And so as a chief medical lead, I am responsible for our medical strategy when it comes to engaging community, but also engaging our research sponsors who are wishing to work with us. And I'm excited to be on the podcast today. So thank you so much for asking me to join and share my perspective. Awesome. Thanks so much, Camille. We're so excited to have you. So without further ado, let's jump right in. So I'm going to start with just some pretty broad questions just to get us going. Why is diversity, equity, and inclusion in clinical research important? We've talked separately, and you and I are both super passionate about this topic, but why should other people care about it as well? Why is it so exciting that there's such a push for this in the field right now? Oh, thanks, Lauren, for asking that question. It's exciting and necessary because we know that if everyone isn't included in the process of drug development or development of interventions to improve healthcare, then those interventions and drug products and medical devices that are developed may not actually be as efficacious and safe in everyone once they are on the market and being used in the real world population. I could go on and on and on about how race is a social construct, which it is, but we do have differences in genetics and metabolism based on, you know, who we are, our background and how we are, you know, biologically made up. And even those small differences can cause a change in how a drug works in a person, one person to the next. But if you aren't studying everybody in the research process and including everybody in the research process, then that often isn't discovered until the drug is already available and being used in the real world population. And folks start realizing that, hey, you know, this drug isn't as efficacious or as safe in everyone as it appeared to be in clinical trials. And that's because everyone wasn't included. So that's why it's so important. We just want to make sure that everyone has the same access to research opportunities and also the same opportunity for you know, drugs and medical devices and other health interventions to be studied. And so that when they're used in the real world population, we have a clear understanding of what that is actually going to look like. So that's why it's so important. Yeah, thank you so much. That was that was a great explanation. What would you say the state of DEI is in clinical research right now, right? So in your description, right, you did a great job, I think, of outlining where some of our growth areas are, to use a more positive term, right, where we know that depending on who clinical trials are conducted in, you may or may not have enough information about what it's going to look like in the real world. What's happening in the DEI space in clinical research right now? What is that landscape 
currently look like? Well, Lauren, <laughs> it hasn't been that great, honestly, in the oh, past. Goodness. <laughs> I just, it just hasn't. Um, if you look at, you know, the 2020 U.S. census and communities of color, folks who are Black or Native American, Pacific Islander, Hispanic ethnicity, we make up like 40% of the patient population. And I say we because I'm a Black woman. We make up 40% of the patient population, yet we are often less than 5% of the clinical trial participants across clinical studies. So we make up less than 5% of the clinical trial participants, but we're you know close to half of the actual U.S. population. And so there is now a realization from research sponsors, regulatory authorities, the public in general, healthcare providers, that that is not okay. And so there is a major push to be better and to do better in this regard. And so the landscape we do see is shifting where research sponsors, clinical investigators are starting to think, how can we approach this differently than we have in the past? How can we better engage communities that we have historically maybe ignored or who haven't been as represented in clinical research as we would have preferred for them to be. And so while it hasn't been great in the past, what we're seeing is the tide starting to shift. And we're seeing people starting to think differently about the research process and engaging and even how clinical trials are developed. What do inclusion and exclusion criteria look like? Are the inclusion and exclusion criteria so restrictive that we are inadvertently leaving people out who we would like to be included? So there's a shift in the way of thinking for all of this, but it's not perfect by any means. And it's definitely a change in mindset. Historically, it seems that in terms of recruitment, the focus has been on, you know, numbers and just getting patients enrolled in a clinical trial as quickly as possible, ethically, in a certain time frame, without necessarily thinking about that mix of racial and ethnic background of the patients. And when you're not doing that, or when you have to go back and rethink about that mix of patients that you want to include, it might take additional effort and time and money within the development plan in order to make that a possibility. And that is something that we're seeing research sponsors starting to now think about and to incorporate into their planning. But it's it's not perfect by any means. Right. We're also seeing policies come out from regulatory authorities like the FDA encouraging research sponsors to think about this and think about it differently. So, you know, a request for diversity plans before phase three trials even begin. And not only does that encourage research sponsors to think about this process differently, but it also raises a level of transparency and accountability so that research sponsors are feeling like, hey, this is no longer a nice to have in terms of diversity and inclusion in clinical trials, but it's more so something that we have to do, need to do, and should be doing. Absolutely. So I I find all of what you're saying so fascinating because in our day-to-day lives, our work is closely related, but we focus in different parts of the clinical research pipeline, right? So I'm more focused on that ethical review piece and the before you actually start recruiting are all of your ducks in a row from an ethics perspective and from an informed consent perspective. To what extent should we, from an ethics perspective, be including folks in research? And I can tell you that in the wake of the 70s and 
kind of all of these to the Tuskegee study and several other studies coming to light. And then the National Research Act, there was this approach really from late 70s through, I would say, the early aughts, so early 2000s, where historically marginalized populations and historically disadvantaged populations where we, as a community, we were trying to be so protective because those communities had been so exploited in the research context. And as Tuskegee showed, right, I mean, just long-term exploitation by government officials, and that was horrific. And so in response to those sorts of stories and that history, we kind of went in the, right, we need to protect these populations, and the best way we can protect these populations is to make it harder for them to participate in research. And that was the framework, right? But then you see exactly what you're talking about of you have all these institutions and you have all these pharma companies and the government and IRBs. But now we're at a point where we're saying, okay, exclusion in and of itself may not actually be a protection. How can we include people, but still be protective of them? And you see this shift in the conversation on decisionally impaired folks and whether or not a surrogate decision maker can consent on their behalf. You see it in this conversation where for, again, 70s through early aughts, you know, this very strict, like we should really potentially be limiting the inclusion of that population. And now we're seeing the principle of equitable selection much more broadly in terms of not just how can we protect marginalized people? How can we protect vulnerable populations? But also how can we include them? How can we make sure that under this ethical principle, that we're making sure that those who want to participate and those who might possibly, who want to participate and who want to be part of this process, how can we help them be part of that process within reasonable limits? It's a much more nuanced conversation and it's quite frankly, a much harder conversation to have and to find policies and procedures that work. And that's a great point. I agree with you there. We have to get the pendulum back to the middle, right? there's this balance. You want to protect all patients in the clinical research process, including those who have been historically underrepresented. But you also have to find this balance of not having that protection, as you said, equal exclusion, but having protections that will still encourage inclusion of those who have been historically underrepresented and also a removal of the barriers that have led Absolutely. to those disparities. Like that's literally the definition of equity is the actual action of removing the barriers that have caused the disparities in the first place and a focus on the marginalized populations. You also mentioned some of the historical atrocities like Tuskegee that have occurred. And so in addition to thinking about what are we doing from an IRB perspective, a decision maker perspective, a research sponsor perspective, I think it's also important to remember we have to do our due diligence in the community. From a community perspective, there is a trust element that is a huge factor in helping to determine whether or not patients even want to be involved in clinical trials. And many of us who are from these communities, we know about these historical atrocities like Tuskegee or Henrietta Lacks. And the consensus is, I'm good on that. No, I don't want to be involved because look what happened in the past. I don't want to be a guinea pig. These are right. the sentiments that we hear. And so there is a level of education and trust building that needs to occur 
within these communities so that people can make informed decisions based on where we are now in history. It doesn't mean they're automatically going to want to participate just because we're demystifying the clinical research process and sharing how IRB and certain regulations have changed since Mm the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. But we do want to make sure we are educating people and raising their awareness around what those changes have looked like to ensure that they are protected and making sure that we are building trust and using trusted messengers to amplify the message around why it's important to be involved in clinical research and doing it before we as an industry or as research sponsors need something like before we need you to be in a trial just out of the goodwill and the passion in our hearts for wanting everyone to have better healthcare at Equinate, we call that cognitive trust, right? Building that rapport before we need something, that's really important. That's going to be one of the main keys to achieving health equity through inclusive research. But it's something that's like another piece of the puzzle that we really have to focus on and make sure we don't leave out of the equation is the education and awareness of communities, the acknowledgement of the historical atrocities, because, you know, yes, the mistrust is valid, but then helping to move people from that state of mistrust to more trust and being educated around these issues so that they can make informed decisions about their healthcare and about clinical research participation, whether they choose to do it or not, making sure it's an informed decision, a well-informed decision. Right. I love the focus on communicating with people and engaging people who might be from marginalized communities before you need something from them, Mm -hmm. right? The idea that you can't just show up in a community and say, hey, we're doing this clinical trial, sign up Mm -hmm. um, and expect (laughs) great results. You know, from your perspective, what role does clinical trial recruitment play in advancing DEI and clinical research? And also, historically, we think about, right, and if you read, you know, FDA guidance or guidance from HHS, when we talk about recruitment, often we're talking about recruitment for a specific clinical trial as opposed to, hey, we're engaging in this very long-term relationship with you, members of this community, so that we let you know when there might be something of interest and you make an informed decision about whether or not you want to participate. So again, in the field, I think we're still in this mindset of recruitment activities are specific to specific research activities and not taking that broader view that Mm -hmm. you all at Acclimate are trying to encourage. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how recruitment plays a role in DEI and research, but also, I guess I'm essentially saying it sounds to me like we're thinking of recruitment in the field as a very narrow part of the process when really it might be more beneficial and might be more accurate to think of recruitment more broadly and not just about specific studies, but about the research enterprise as a whole. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. You're exactly right. Recruitment is just one piece of the puzzle. And if we think about the broader picture, what I like to say, and just, I guess, to give some background. So I come from a traditional pharmaceutical industry background before joining Acclinate. I worked in pharmaceutical industry for about 15 years and I worked in medical affairs. And so with that experience, you know, I know that companies, research sponsors will make a investment decision and a business development decision early on to study a particular disease state. And it's when that decision is made, it's not as if the clinical trials start the next day, right? There is time and planning and effort that is taking into determining what trials do you want to do? What 
are the designs going to look like if there's more than one study? What clinical trial sites are we going to select? When the investment decision or the business development decision is made, that's before you even get to talking about the clinical trials. That's really when research sponsors need to be thinking about the communities they want to engage, including those who have been historically underrepresented. And that is ideally when a research sponsor would come to a company like ours, acclimate and say, hey, we are interested in studying, I'll just pick a disease state, breast cancer. At some point, we're going to have three or four clinical trials in breast cancer, but we know that Black women have disproportionately negative outcomes when it comes to breast cancer. So we want to go ahead and start engaging Black women now in maybe specific cities where we're thinking about doing clinical trials, but we haven't you know, picked the sites yet. And it's at that point in time where the efforts start and you bake that into your timeline, you bake that into your budget and the efforts might not even have anything to do with the clinical trial. It might be going into a city and offering free screening or free webinars on, you know, breast cancer hormone receptor types and what does it mean to have a mammogram and just get out of the goodwill to help build that cognitive trust and doing that over time so that by the time a trial does start and you're ready to put a clinical trial site location in that particular neighborhood, people at least know who you are as a research sponsor and they know that you're working with a company like Acclinate that is very genuine about building trust and raising education and awareness around disease state and clinical research in the community. And so they're more apt to want to participate and listen to what you have to say as it relates to that study when it's time for that study to start. At least that's how we envision it. So that's that broad picture. And then when you think specifically about recruitment, I think a lot about besides the community engagement, right? Because that should really start before the study even begins. And once the study begins, yes, you'll have your recruitment efforts. But if you've been in the community ahead of time, enhancing the diversity of your recruitment efforts will be a little easier than if you're kind of just going in cold turkey. But there are other elements even besides that outreach that are important. It's the clinical trial site selection. That's another element that's important. Mm -hmm. Research sponsors tend to go to the same research centers over and over and over again. The ones that are well-known that have, quote unquote, performed well in previous clinical trials. And yes, that makes sense to an extent, but it's time for us to start thinking more deeply about, is that where the people in the community are actually getting their care? Right. Because if you're not going to where the people in the community who are the more diverse patient populations that you're trying to reach, where they're actually getting their care, then you may not enroll who you're trying to enroll if you're only focused on that big research center. A lot of times the big research centers have folks who come from all over the country or all over the world to get what they believe is the best and finest care. And those are people who may have the resources or what have you to get there. They might not be your everyday community folks who are going to the community clinic down the street. And so if you're not bringing that research opportunity or that study to the community clinic or Mm -hmm. connecting the healthcare providers at the community clinic to that large research institution so that they at least know that there's a clinical trial opportunity there, then you're missing out on all of the diverse people who actually live in that community who could potentially be eligible for the clinical trial, 
or who aren't even being asked because they don't get their care at the big research center. So we have to think about clinical trial site selection, building infrastructure for potential clinical trial sites in the community that may be interested in being a part of research, but don't maybe have the staff or the know-how or the expertise as the larger research centers. You could partner large research centers up with smaller community centers. There's a lot of different options. And those are the things that we have to start thinking about when it comes to the recruitment piece. Yeah, that's so interesting. Before I started at Advara, I actually worked for Department of Health and Human Services and the Office for Human Research Protection, which is responsible for the common rule, right? But as a regulator, we would talk often about how getting these smaller community clinics and that sort of thing involved in research is a really complicated endeavor because if they're not doing a ton of research, the entire bureaucratic structure of what you need to do to ensure that you're well poised to be part of a research enterprise. The folks at your clinic might have no idea how to even go about that. So of course, to that end, right, the Fed tries to do a lot of work on making that piece more accessible and providing guidance. But if you don't even know the right keywords to look for, you're not going to necessarily find the right office within HHS that you need to be clicking on to find that guidance document, right? And so again, it's so interesting to see how the different pieces of this puzzle fit together, right? So you've got recruitment as a piece, but you also have site selection. And then when you think about site selection, you really can't ignore that there are all these regulations that need to be followed before a study proceeds to actually enrolling subjects. And if you're looking at an institution that perhaps doesn't have that experience or they don't have anybody on staff who's experienced in that way, that's a disadvantage to even being Mm -hmm. able to get the sites that might have more of that diversity that ultimately you're looking for. It's such a great example of just, again, how all of the pieces in the clinical research pipeline need to come together and need to have this focus on diversity equity and inclusion. You can't just have one portion, right? It's not just up to the pharmaceutical companies. It's up to the IRB shops. It's up to the Fed to make sure that they're making processes and procedures easier for folks to navigate. Yeah, very true. And something else that I don't want to miss here, Lauren, is in the year of 2022, the role of technology in recruitment not even just recruitment, but raising awareness around clinical research opportunities, around specific disease states, around the need for underrepresented populations to now be included. There's an opportunity for us to have much broader reach with the technologies that are available to us now in 2022. I am someone who is a firm believer in boots on the ground effort, so to speak. So, I mean, that totally has to still be part of the equation, but we cannot ignore the fact that you're able to have an even broader and quicker reach through social media platforms and the use of technology. And so at Acclinate, we have a digital platform called Now Included. Our community members who are part of Now Included, we've got digital members, but we also have members who have have become members of Now Included through our boots on the ground efforts. And it's one of the ways that we use technology to raise awareness around specific disease states and opportunities for clinical research. And it goes beyond specific city location. I mean, anybody can join the digital platform if they have a PC or a phone, it's an app. We share information that we feel would be helpful 
to specific communities of color when it comes to making decisions around healthcare and clinical research, but we're also providing an opportunity for people to share stories and hear from everyday people and also clinical experts who look just like them, because that goes towards that trust building factor as well. And something else that we do in terms of technology is we have a separate platform called Edict in which we take information in an aggregate form that we're getting from that community engagement that we have through now included. And we're able to take that information and use AI, artificial intelligence and machine learning to help us refine how we engage with our community members. So we learn what demographics and what locations do we see trends where, oh, it seems like these community members are more interested in learning about diabetes. Well, then we can tailor our efforts and our outreach around diabetes and potentially diabetes studies to that group of participants within our community. But we use AI and ML to do that tailoring. So I just didn't want to omit the use of technology to help us achieve health equity through inclusive research, just because, you know, again, it's 2022 and there's so many different ways you can leverage digital technology aspects of our everyday world to make this a reality. Yeah, absolutely. That also brings me to another area in the space of how do we increase DEI in the clinical research enterprise. We've identified lots of different spots where there's growth opportunities, right? So we've talked about recruitment and we've talked about what's the term that you were using, cognitive trust. Yes. Did I get it right? Yeah, it's such a great term. I'm sorry. So there's two types of trust. Oh, yes, absolutely. Speak earlier. Oh my gosh. Wait, let's let's clarify. So there's cognitive trust and there's affective trust. Ooh. So yes. Tell uh, me more. <laughs> so cognitive trust is based on rationalization, everyday data information, knowledge. It's what we feel at Acclinate research sponsors have leaned too heavily into when trying to encourage people to get involved in clinical trials. So it is you going to your doctor and you saying to your doctor or your doctor telling you about a study and you saying, oh, well, I trust my doctor because my doctor went to school for 50 million years and they've got all this experience. He knows what he's talking about. And he's sharing this preclinical data with me that shows this drug might be effective in humans. And so, yeah, I trust what he's saying because he's smart and he's got this experience or it could be a woman, he or she, or, you know, whomever has experience in the healthcare field. And that's why I trust what they're saying. That's cognitive trust is based on, again, knowledge, Mm -hmm. know-how, rationalization, all of that. Right. But that really needs to be married with affective trust, which starts with an A on purpose, like (laughs) A-F-F-E-C-T-I-P-E. And we feel like folks haven't really leaned on affective trust enough. And that affective trust is what I was mentioning before. That's that goodwill, that really caring about people. So if I have a physician who, I mean, yes, they've been to school for however many years, I know what they know what they're talking about, but they've also shown that they care about my family they ask me, how was my day? Yeah, that bedside manner me, piece. Yeah, like yeah. it's that feeling of goodwill. Like you really care about me as a person. Right. The marriage of those two things is what allows people to trust in each other. And we feel like that's something that has really been missing quite a bit in the research industry. And so 
if you go outside of the research industry and you think about who else can serve as a trusted messenger, it might not be somebody in research. It might not even be somebody in healthcare. It might be a pastor in the community that the community members trust. It might be the president of a local historically Black college or university who is dealing with a particular healthcare issue that they are open with sharing um, to community members and students at the school and the parents. It could be a little league baseball coach. We've had instances where we use that person as a trusted messenger or what we like to call a community activation point who can Mm -hmm. amplify the message around the importance of being involved in clinical research or making informed healthcare decisions. And so that's affective trust. And we have like a whole affective trust framework. We talk about like what are the different components of that. And when you marry that with cognitive trust, we feel like that gives the best chance for achieving health equity through inclusive research. I, I also love that by marrying the two concepts, I mean, it's essentially saying, right, like just because you might have gone to school for 50 years or just because you are a highly educated person in a position that within our societal structure garners with it a lot of respect, you still have work to do. You still Mm -hmm. can't just rely on your white coat and your stethoscope to be the only reason that people trust you, right? It's a two-part process. So you can build all your credentials and you can do all of that work, but you still have to engage with people on a person-to-person level and help them feel confident that they can trust you. I love the idea of marrying those two types of trust. So thank you so much for that clarification. It leads me to this other area, again, of just like, who are the people making the decisions about DE&I and about where the focus should be, right? So I love that your company is focusing on, you know, you all do a lot of work on recruitment and site selection and in these areas that I think have historically been kind of ignored. And it's awesome to see using technology and AI and all that jazz to be bolstering that part of the process. And then thinking about, right, in my world, how is DEI seen? What are folks on institutional review boards or privacy boards or Mm -hmm. scientific review committees, right? Like, What are their roles in promoting diversity, equity, inclusion? And then also, right, how good of a job have we done in the fields in and of themselves of making sure that there's diverse stakeholders trying to address the problems? I love the field that I work for, and I've been in this field for over 15 years, and it's been an amazing journey. But at the same time, when I look around me, it's pretty clear that there's it's not a particularly diverse field when you look at it from a gender or racially based perspective, right? You know, you're more likely to see kind of older white men and women, but still more heavily weighed towards men, especially in the medical profession. These are the folks making a lot of decisions around diversity, equity, and inclusion. One of my quote unquote homework assignments is always, okay, so like, what can I do in my role to help improve DE&I? What are policies and procedures in the IRB space that we should be looking at that perhaps have had a negative impact on the diversity in research studies? And what are things that we should be talking about and perhaps reframing in a different way in this more new approach of inclusivity as opposed to exclusivity is how you protect people? What can we be doing? So I would love to get some of your thoughts on that. You need diverse talent everywhere, on every team, in every therapeutic area, in every bit of healthcare. 
people who can bring a different perspective and lived experience to the table and can be that squeaky wheel or raise the red flag when we see something that might hinder the ability for underrepresented populations to be included. And you have to do that because often the majority what we see is the majority groups that are part of these teams, it just might not be something, it's not something they think about because it's not their lived experience necessarily. And so that's why that diversity of thought, race, ethnicity, background, like it's super important. And some very tactical things one can do is just mentor people who have different backgrounds and don't realize that these types of careers exist open that door and share with them about what we do day to day, because that might be the light bulb that goes off in that student's head and sees, oh my gosh, I want to be on an IRB one day, or I want to work in clinical development at a major pharmaceutical company, a career opportunity that they didn't even know existed prior to one of us who's already doing it saying something. And then also creating pathways and programs that help those who have typically been underrepresented get there. So in my former role at a pharmaceutical company, I created a fellowship program for pharmacy and PhD postgrads who were interested in pharmaceutical industry. And these programs existed before we even had one that existed at my company, but we created a new one that was specifically focused on historically Black college and university and HBCU that was like down the street (laughs) from our company campus. Because I thought, why is it that this school is so close and there's so much great talent and we don't have a closer connection with them? Why aren't we tapping into that talent and bringing exposure of the careers at our company to those students and to those graduates? So we created a fellowship program for PharmDs and PhDs We implemented scholarship programs for current students at other schools. We connected with third-party organizations that were already doing this work, and we sponsored their work and connected people who wanted to be mentors at my previous company with mentees that were part of those third-party programs. There are very tactical things that we each can do, and it doesn't take a lot. You just have to take the time to do it. And you are then opening the door to these new opportunities that folks may not have even realized existed. And you're opening that door to those who have been historically underrepresented, who can then grow up, take that pathway and become experts in these fields and make the changes that we want to see. Awesome. Well, Camille, thank you so much for joining me for this timely and interesting conversation. I'm so happy that we were able to connect And I so appreciate your perspective here. So thank you so much again. Thank you, Lauren, for having me. This has been great. So that's all for this week's episode. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, keep a lookout on Advara's social channels and on advara.com for our next episode. 